knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Welcome everybody to the Christian Optimist. My name is Pastor Rafe Chenery. Woo! Am I excited for today? I uh, I have recorded an uh, interview with Dr. Brian Thomas of the Institute for Creation Research, and uh, we are going to have a fascinating conversation. Honestly, I wish I had three, four hours for this conversation because we just dig into a lot of the research he's doing at the within the scientific community and uh, research that the scientific community in general is discovering about. Um, the theory of evolution and uh, the evidence that supports the creation story. Now, this is a topic that I know a lot of Christians have a lot of questions about, and uh, we will talk about a number of the issues in this podcast, but one of the things I want to just say right up front is part of my heart as a pastor is to equip you to be able to live boldly and confidently on the Word of God in our world, and I personally have become convinced uh, that evolution, as it's currently taught, evolution as it has, as I was trained in it, you know, when I was in high school and in college, um, that it is it is a fairy tale, that it is not true, and uh, to say something like that is quite a bold statement. But if we look at the passage I just read in Second Peter chapter three, what will happen in the later days? Scoffers will come, who will deny the creation, who will deny the flood. And, uh, and I think that what we will find, hopefully you'll discover in this interview, is that there is very good and amazing scientific discovery, good scientific evidential reasons, not only to uh, believe the creation story, but to demonstrate that the Bible is a reliable book, not only in its spiritual teachings of what Jesus commanded, but it's in its telling of history. And uh, I, for one, am increasingly convinced, and I had just such a joyful interview with Dr. Brian Thomas today. I also want to say up front, you, may, you might firmly disagree. You might, you might hear uh, what we talk about today and just think that uh, I am living off in la-la land, and you're welcome to feel that way. Uh, Christians will disagree on this topic. Uh, wise Christians, studious Christians will disagree on this topic. I do hope that with brotherly love, we can disagree in love if you're a Christian. Uh, and if you're tuning into this and uh, you uh, you disagree and you're not a follower of Christ, I just I hope that what you pick up from this discussion is, at the very least, that uh, there is good, solid scientific reason and evidence to uh, doubt the common narrative of the uh, scientific community that believes in evolution. Uh, there's good reason to doubt. Not, not necessarily from this episode are you going to get that the whole thing needs to be thrown out or that you need to believe in creation instead, but that there are significant gaping holes that uh, fly in the face of the common narrative. So without further ado, I uh, invite you to listen into this wonderful interview with Dr. Brian Thomas of the Institute for Creation Research. Um, Dr. Brian Thomas, I am so excited to have you uh, with me on the show today, and uh, we've got a big conversation to have, but I would just love uh, if you would take just a moment and uh, just kind of tell us just about your credentials, if you were, what, what, what the work you do is and kind of where you studied in terms of background for this conversation. 
Sure, thank you. Um, I work at the Institute for Creation Research in Dallas as a research scientist. My expertise is on dinosaur bones. So I don't do a whole lot of bone excavations. I do some, but mostly I analyze the bones after they get excavated by whoever and whoever wants to let me analyze them. And what I look for and at, and what I try to characterize using new techniques as they emerge um, is, the, is the proteins that we keep finding in those bones. And of course, um, um, the reason I'm interested in that is because proteins look fresh, they look young, and they fit with what we um, what we believe about the history of the world. Of course, we we take our history from the pages of scripture at the Institute. Um, and uh, and that says that there was a recent creation thousands of years ago, a recent flood, uh, 4,400 or so years ago. And according to the chronology that's in the Bible, and we consider the Bible's testimony as a, a, a more reliable collection of eyewitness documents that gives us, you know, the, the truth about the past. And when we see, you know, these kinds of fresh looking evidences, um, proteins that are still in dinosaur bones, it convinces us that the whole, um, I guess, um, dating scheme that we that we grew up under and that I once believed and, and taught Um that would, that's an error. And so anyway, uh, it's, it's basically what we're all about in general is looking at and explaining the science that does support uh, biblical creation. In other words, God did create it all and he created it the way he said he did and when he said he did, according to the Bible. And who cares about that? Well, if the Bible's right about that, then you can trust the scripture about everything, you know, even, even the spiritual parts. And so that's the thrust of our ministry. And I'm thrilled to have been a part of the Institute for um, since 2008, whatever the math is on that 15 or so years. And, uh, and so I have a master's degree in biotechnology, uh, which is basically biochemistry. And then uh, later in life, in my forties, I was able to go back and get a PhD in paleo biochemistry, which is the, the molecules of life, that's biochemistry, but now looking at those in uh, protein, uh, sorry, in uh, fossils. So that's that's what my background is, and that's what I like to do. You know, in a in an alternate life, I, I always joke I would love to be Indiana Jones. I just, just I just feel like not only the study of it all, but it's it, it just fascinates me. I, I love looking at the past. I love history, but uh, this part of history is fascinating to me as well. I, I was watching one video of yours um, where you were talking about your conversion story, and I, I just I love that language. And it's it, the video wasn't talking about your conversion story to faith in Christ. Um, per se, it was more uh, the journey you went on of being someone who was, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but someone who was, like most people, a convinced evolutionist, um, but then kind of slowly becoming uh, convinced that that was an inaccurate telling of history and that the biblical version was actually more in line with the evidence. I would love if you could kind of just walk us through what what was that journey? So what was that like for you? Um, and what were kind of some of the major stepping stones that helped make that possible for you? Sure. I appreciate that. Um, isn't that a remarkable, I mean, it's like a 180 because you go from, you know, nature did it all. Nature can do all this to, you know, no, nature can't do dilly squat except tear things up. So you need a God, you need a miracle, you need a creation. And that's a complete 180. And man, it took, it's like turning the Titanic, you know, it's, it's, it's like one degree at a time. 
Um, and, and, it, and it came through me um, asking one question at a time and, and digging in and finding uh, answers. So anyway, uh, I, I, I've, we've called it our creation conversion. So not our Christian conversion. Right. So for, so for me, my Christian conversion came when I, you know, when I was actually living in Chicago and um, uh, back in the eighties and we went on a retreat um, in the winter and for, with the youth group. And I think it was Wisconsin and the preacher preached um, and I was convicted of sin. And I remember it was winter and I was so cold that my nose was running even in the auditorium. And, and man, when I came to Christ, I finally, I finally trusted Christ the, the last night. And um, I was, I, I just felt like I had a weight lifted off my, off my shoulders. And I knew at that moment I was forgiven and had an actual relationship with the Lord for the first time, even though I had been a good boy, I had been an acolyte. I had gone through confirmation, baptism classes, all the stuff, Methodist uh, system, and but I didn't have relationship with God until that moment when I said, yes, Lord, I need you. Please save me. And so then I went back home and went through the same motions and was was trained through the public education and really more so through uh, our, our, our media, you know, television and movies. And that's how that's how I got my worldview was through media. Yeah, I didn't I didn't spend time in, in the Bible. I never got discipled. Um, and so I ended up in college in Texas years later, about seven years later. And, you know, my, as you said, my um, faith foundation was really, yeah, I knew Jesus was real back then. And I, and, you know, he saved me from my sins. And, you know, in the end of days, I'll, end of my days, I'll, I'll meet him and I'll have that forgiveness in my back pocket. Right. But as far as life now, it's all about me and having fun and, um, uh, you know, just trying to just trying to make sense of it all the best as best I could. And, and anyway, so that all changed one day when a group of Christians encountered me and they were out sharing the gospel on campus and I was out skateboarding and they came up and said, hey, what are you doing? And so, you know, asked me if I was a Christian. And I thought, well, I kind of am. I was back then, you know. Uh -huh. So I so so then um, and then they said, "Oh, that's great! You're a Christian. Well, why don't you come with us and witness? Because that's what Christians do." And I, and I thought, "Oh, is it? I don't know what this is." <laughs> okay, so I picked up my skateboard and I and I went with this group, and it was wonderful. I mean, I, I observed them that night, and they were they had love for one another that I hadn't seen. They didn't. They were having a blast with one another, and they didn't have to drink to have fun, you know. And it was great. And so I wanted to be a part of that. What they had, and that night, that very night, I had a um, a conversation with the, the group's leader. His name is Kurt. He's now a pastor down in Houston. Uh, and Kurt asked me uh, all kinds of questions. And we talked till four in the morning, and he answered every one of my objections. And yes, even as a Christian, I had been so filled with secularized thinking that, um, you know, for example, the Bible is full of errors. So I, I threw that at him, you know, even though I knew Jesus was real and saved my soul, I was told then I was, and I just swallowed it un uncritically that the Bible's full of errors, that the creation right. of the world, you know, could never have happened the way the Bible describes it and all this stuff. 
Um, and, and so I, and so I threw all these and he had answers and he's the first person I ever met who had any answers, let alone all the answers. And that's because he studied not just what he believed, but why he believed it. And he, and he loved studying why he believed what he believed. And because he loved the Lord Jesus. Anyway, it was his walk that attracted me to him and his friends, but it was his intellect that, that started to steer the ship for me. And, and he challenged me at one point, several months later, he said, okay, you believe in evolution and millions of years and um, uh, slow, gradual changes of fish turning into people. You actually believe that? You know, it's like, well, I mean, don't you? I mean, doesn't everyone? He's like, no, I don't believe that. Fish don't turn into people. They never did and they never will. But that's what my textbook said. And I, you know, then he said, show, show me how that could have happened. Show me the evidence that it did happen. And I looked and looked and I, and I couldn't find any. So months later, I had to report to him, I can't find any evidence that fish ever did turn into people. It's not in the fossils. And I can't find any evidence that fish could turn into people because fish stay fish and people stay people. That's what we see in science. That's what observational science tells me. And he's like, okay, well, go back to your Bible. What do you believe about it now? And I went back to Genesis and read it again. And I was like, you know, this makes more sense of the real world. The creation explains the design in creatures. The and you're how old when all this is happening? 20. Wow. Yeah. The flood explains how we have fossils anyways, and rock layers and continents and and the whole layout that we have on Earth's surface and is explained better with this system. And now I'm thinking, uh, as a research scientist, looking at dinosaur proteins, certainly the biblical worldview the, um, explains what I'm looking at um, better than, than the conventional worldview uh, certainly, in terms of short-lived proteins in dinosaur bones. So anyway, my creation conversion, wow. <laughs> um, praise the Lord. He had someone who challenged, loved me enough to challenge me and ask me questions about what I believe, even as a Christian, and and said, okay, you believe you believe this um, this story about origins that contradicts what the what God's word says about where we came from. So show me how, you know, show me the evidence that God's word is wrong. And I, and I looked and looked and looked and that I couldn't find any. So that's the beginning of my creation conversion story. So now, and so what's the upshot of that? It means, whoa, the Bible is true yeah, all the way. And I can trust God more now than I, than I ever thought I could back then. Back then, my view of God was like, he's a little stronger than the devil, you know, or something like that. Right. Now my view of God is. You know, if he wanted the devil to cease to exist, it would happen the instant he commands it. I mean, he holds everything together. Uh, Colossians 1.16, in him all things consist. So uh, he's the creator and the sustainer, and he's my savior. And I want everyone to know him in all these ways. Oh, I, you know, it, your, your story is so relatable on two fronts. One, when I was 18, uh, that's when I became a follower of Christ. And um, you know, any question on evolution and creation aside, one of the huge turning points for me was the person who really led me to Christ. I met their friends and I remember meeting this group of guys who they were, they were, I remember the first time I saw them, they were playing basketball and they were going to go see a movie that night. And, uh, like you said, they weren't drinking, which a lot of my other friends were doing. And I just remember thinking, man, if I knew that you, you could, 
you, you could enjoy life and play basketball and, and, and watch a movie and, and love God at the same time. I would have avoided all this stuff I was doing in the past to begin with. I just had never seen it. And uh, it's it's so important to be a just good yours and my story just reminding me even right now just at all times are being a witness people are people who God has on the fringe they're watching us and they're seeing the the joy that is in a believer's life but also I'll, I'll remember the first time as well my own story where I realized that uh you know there, there's that old uh kind of understanding of faith which is something like faith is believing despite evidence to the contrary um, and I think that's what a lot of people think when they think of Christians. It's like, okay, look, science is going in one direction, but all right, you're a Christian. You just have to leave all reason to the side and just go in this direction. And for a while, I, I think I felt similar. Um, and it wasn't until someone challenged me on some of that stuff that I started to have a passion and realize, wait a second, that's not the definition of faith. It's not in the opposite direction of reason. It, it, it's further than the reason can take you, but the reason supports the faith because the Christian faith is rooted in space and time and actual historical places and events. And so uh, that's a huge part of my story as well. Could you maybe set up for us a little bit? So the, the main conversation today, it's on evolution and creation and, and really the evidences that you're discovering as a scientist uh, looking into God's remarkable creation. Can you set up for us um, as, as honestly as, as, as you can, what is the larger evolutionary framework? Like how, how someone who's listening in and you know, they've heard the terms, maybe have a general kind of concept, but what's the larger framework that someone who opposes you, a, a strict evolutionist, might set up? Uh, it's really, I, I can give it a whirl here. Um, in, in my understanding of what I was taught, um, it, it's, re it's really mostly a historical sketch, a historical narrative. Um, yeah, and so it starts with a Big Bang, and um, you have um, hydrogen. The big, the big picture story is hydrogen becomes humans over time. So then now we just fill in the details, like how and when did hydrogen become humans? Well, uh, Big Bang, and then you have the formation of hydrogen, and then matter decides to clump up together to make stars and planets. Those clump up together uh, to make galaxies. And, um, and then we, one of the, one of the, um, Planets ends up with the right conditions on it to um, support the emergence of life. Um, and that's going to be planet Earth. And then over eons, the first living things um, evolve by slow uh, changes over, over a long time um, uh, by means of natural selection, as Charles Darwin said in 1859 in The Origin of Species. Um, and so that's the that's the narrative. And so you have the 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 death of the unfit individuals paves the way for new generation of individuals to uh, to develop new traits. And then you go from a germ to um, a German, I guess, um, through you know you, it's from goo to you via the zoo, as the cute phrase we used to use. Oh, I like that. Um, and so, and, and so that's how we got here. We came from apes, which came from fish, which came from germs, which came from stardust. And uh, that's the evolutionary broad, broad scheme. Um, um, but how does that happen? If, if that happens, you know, um, what's the evidence for it? And is there evidence against it? Mm -hmm. Do we see it happening today? Do we see how, how do we look at evidence for it having happened in the past? And when we started asking when I started asking those questions, 
I asked them one at a time and I got one answer at a time. And, and after about, I don't know, 20 or a hundred questions asked and then answered, I finally realized um, none of that story holds up. None of that story, hydrogens don't become humans. Stars don't, stars can't even form without a nearby exploding star. So where'd the first star come from? You have to have a supernatural beginning to the particular universe that we're in. So creation, you know, by miracle is on the table. It should be on the table instead of, uh, like you say, um, uh, faith is a step in the light of the evidence, not a step into the dark and despite the evidence. It's a step, you know, in light of the evidence, and um, and but but we have to be willing to go there. And um, there's there's a spiritual reason why so few are willing to even um, consider the evidence for creation. Maybe you can ask me about that. <laughs> well, I think I will. You know, and I, you <laughs> know, just to kind of um, maybe to relate to some folks who might be listening to this, I think. You know what, what? What you're suggesting, and what what I agree with, is so in the face. It, it, it can almost feel like there's a tidal wave of scientific literature facing in the opposite direction of what you're saying. It, it, at least if we're taking the, you know, just the general sense of the conversation from the general layperson out there, you know, it, it it's assumed evolution is assumed, and with most people that I, I speak to, whether they're believer or non-believer alike, evolution is so known fact and known history that. Um, to disregard it is to kind of be labeled almost like a fool, like you're just kind of the crazy person on the side. Um, and and so I, I think I recognize the weight of that. And and part of my questioning is like, man, how did, and this might be for later, but how did, if the narrative is false, how did it become so assumed as the dominant narrative within the scientific community if there really is very little facts supporting it? Um, and if, especially if there are facts stating and claiming the opposite of it. Um, and so maybe I, we could go there next and um, forgive me, actually, I think you, you were just setting me up to ask you a different question, but I'm, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction for a moment. But one of your major fields of study is on some of the discoveries that you're finding and that this, the larger scientific community is discovering within fossils, um, specifically with soft tissue cells and things like that. Can And I think if I'm understanding correctly, this is kind of falling into that camp of here's actual evidence that is flying in the face of that is suggesting the opposite of evolution. So could you walk us through what the scientific community is discovering with that? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I feel like I've been asked three questions. Uh -oh. <laughs> so, well, uh, poor so interviewing on my part then. Um, well, okay. W where do you want to start? Is there, is there a particular area you want to start? And I, if not, I can focus you in a little bit more than I did. Okay, so what I let me just make a suggestion as to how, um, in my view, the scientific consensus came about, and okay. I completely I completely agree that you know evolution is the um, is is the reigning paradigm. It's the way everyone thinks. It's what everyone believes. And if you're going to go against that, you will be labeled a fool, just like you said. And so you better have strong reasons to go against it. Um, and I, I found those reasons, so I'm willing to. Um, um, so, but how did it come to, to be? Um, it, it, uh, part of it is historical. Uh, so we have um, 
the, the view of eons or long ages was was promoted on purpose um, by Lyell and Hutton, and then um, these are these are geologists who basically just kept hammering their drum um, and 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 reinterpreting the rock layers instead of being formed in a flood. They just decided, no, we don't like that. We don't want that. Um, and in fact, Hutt, one of Hutton's letters, and I quote this in my recent book, it just came out, it's called Living in Light of Genesis. And I, and I, I don't have it in front of me, and I'm going to misquote him, but um, he said, I realized that, he said something like this, I realized that if the mosaic narrative is ever to be shut down, it would be through an historic sketch so he's admitting in a personal letter that he he is crafting on purpose a new history that in that includes eons un, untold ages and stages of of of, his, of earth history during which time these rock layers were deposited and he, he they never came up and gave scientific evidence why these rock layers could not possibly have been formed in Noah's flood they just said they couldn't they just asserted it and it, it it had appeal. And when Darwin's book came out, wow, because Darwin assumed the um the old ages of Lyell and Hutton and and then and he he added onto that th this idea that that creatures um slowly morph over time and you can get from any creature to any other creature, just give it enough time and enough chance and enough death. So we have time, chance, and death become the new unholy trinity. And within 10 years of the publication of Origin of Species in the 1800, late 1800s, um, it became a dominant worldview, starting in England and then immediately spreading across the whole world. And I think one reason is, one reason why it was so popular and become popularized, because it gets God, it pushes, the older you make the universe, the further away you, you can imagine yourself being from the beginning, from the creation, and therefore from the creator. So if you want to construct a way of thinking that insulates you from feeling guilty about your sin, if you want to construct a way of thinking that makes you feel good and right about doing what you want to do the way you want to do it with no regard for a creator, um, then this is a great way to do it. And I think it's that appeal that comes from our sin nature that um, that that really um, carries the day uh, for a lot of people. So what do you think about that? Well, I, I think you're spot on. I think scripture would support that. You know, where is it? Is it in uh, is it in first Peter that talks about they'll in the later days, they'll deny the flood and they'll de they'll deny those kind of early historic moments of what the Bible says to be true. And it's very pastoral, what you just said, in uh, kind of indicating the idols of the heart um, that lead people to believe false, false things in spite of the, you know, God making his ways clear. Romans chapter one, that we're without excuse to know the things of God. A, a question I'd have for you just following up to that, you know, the assumption within the dominant kind of scientific community's narrative of evolution is this idea of deep time, right? This, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of years. Um, and you're standing in another camp and you're saying that that's a false narrative and the evidence doesn't support that. What, what would you say, you know, I, I suppose uh, a skeptic towards what you're saying would look to something like carbon dating or the, the other dating methods that are out there that, you know, they, they, they take a fossil bone and 
you know, you put it through a, a handful of tests and you come up with, okay, this is dates to a hundred million years old, or this dates to 35 million years old. And, uh, and that seems to be the, the, the main way that you date something, which would support something like, you know, a deep time, hundreds of millions of years. Is there, is there a reason to suggest that, that you feel that those are, those are not good methods for dating and that those aren't reliable? Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. And, and, and by the way, for me, in my creation conversion, um, the first questions I asked were how can a fish turn into a person? Huh. And, 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 I, and, and my answers to that, you know, came around to being, well, you can't turn a fish into anything much other than a fish, because if you did, you'd have to eventually transform one essential core body part into what it's supposed to be turning into. And that would no longer then integrate with the rest of the fish and it would just die. You know, you put legs on a fish, it can't swim as well. It would just get eaten. Um, you, you know, you put lungs in a fish. Of course, we have lung fish and they're designed to they're designed to 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 go one way or the other. But that, but that's because they're, it's all pre-integrated. So but if I was going to convert, you know, gills into some sort of a reptile lung, you know, the, the narrative is that the fish are supposed to turn into reptiles and well, then you'd have a you'd have a, a um, some sort of a chimera that would be gobbled and swallowed and gone. Um, and anyway, so you can't disrupt the core um, features without killing that creature. And so I thought, well, that's that's out. Evolution is out for me. But then this deep time concept it clung because it's really, really so so um, deeply embedded in my thinking. And so it took a lot of research for me to go, okay, what what's the evidence? Am I even willing to challenge this? And at first I was unwilling. I didn't even want to ask the question, is there evidence against deep time? Because I knew that if that if I if I found the evidence against it, that I would be ridiculed, you know, and who wants to be the the not cool guy in the room? And this uh -huh. this peer pressure was a huge deal. And by the way, scientists have peers <laughs> and suffer huge peer pressure. I mean, Imagine as a scientist, you, you know, I, I would be I would be miserable believing what I believe, knowing what I know, but in having to try to publish, you know, technical literature in a secular setting, I I do it now anyways because um, because I can, but um, but but the reason I'm I'm supported in that way is because I also have avenues where I can talk like I am now about the uh, you know the evidence against those ideas. So let me just give you one. Um, we have we have um, lots of studies from the secular uh, mainstream scientists where they are actually testing uh, the, the uh, testing the some of the radioisotope systems that they use to to date rocks to, to assign ages to rocks. By the way, the the way this works generally is you have an isotope ratio. I know that's two words, sciencey words. But even even pastors can get this. Uh, so isotope like is a, a backhanded, like like a like a like a subtle slap. I'll take it. I'll receive it gently. <laughs> Look, I'm trying over here. I'm, trying. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so an isotope is a version of an atom, and some isotopes are radioactive, and so you get the ratio of the radioactive, which is usually more rare, to the stable isotope of that same atom. Uh, the stable one is not radioactive, so you get that ratio. And but th that's all you're measuring. You could all you really can measure right now in science is 
the ratio. And now we have instruments that can measure very precisely the current ratio of this isotope to that isotope within any rock sample. Um, but that doesn't give you an age. So few people understand that science does not determine ages. You can't without a time machine because you don't know, you don't know how many atoms or, or isotopes of, you don't know how many of which isotope was added to the system when. You don't know how many, uh, what the isotope ratio was to begin with. So you're saying that then they're, they, they have the data of what's left, but they're, in order to date things, they need to assume a starting place or assume a starting amount of those isotopes? Absolutely. You have to assume a starting amount and you have to assume, um, you have to assume, for example, that there's been no um, disturbance of the system in the past. Um, uh, you know, in, in other words, that the system has been what we call isolated since it began. Uh, decaying. Anyway, so we've done, um, so that's, so in order to get a, a date, a, an age assignment, you take what you have measured and then you plug in what you want to plug into the big formula. And the, the formula has lots of um, variables, which we represent with letters. If you remember from, uh, um, from math classes. Yeah. And so we have a whole pile of letters, right? Like variables. Well, what are we going to put here? Well, well, and so it turns out that they put, you know, old age friendly variables into the formula and out you turn the crank and out comes this this old age well they put that whole thing to a test with rocks of known age now this is great this is good science you take a rock of known age where people watched the rock form this is going to be igneous rock it's going to be volcanic rock that's that's the kind of rock that's igneous and we watch form today so the clock, the isotope clock, is supposed to start ticking as soon as it solidifies, or what we call lithifies. And um, so, so we've seen some of these volcanic rocks form, um, some of them 100 years ago, some 200 years ago, some 10 years ago. And we take that rock and we pull out the, um, the isotope ratios and measure those and crank those through the formulae and without exception, we get vastly inflated isotope ages for rocks of known age to the degree where we have a 10-year-old rock that has an isotope age of 2.4 million years. Uh, we have a 200-year-old rock that has an isotope age of anywhere from 100,000 um, isotope years, depending on the isotopic system. Uh, potassium argon is one that they use, for example. Um, <clears throat> you know, up to, up to the millions. Now this is, these are ages for no, you know, for rocks of known age. So my question is that I asked myself after learning about this, if I can't trust the isotope systems to give me the correct ages for igneous rocks of known age, then why would I trust these systems to give me the correct ages for rocks of unknown age? And I decided I'm not going to do that anymore. It's, you know, it, I think what's so refreshing about hearing this, and I, I hope it's, I hope this is encouraging to every Christian listening to this, is, you know, it, it's kind of like we said earlier, you can almost feel foolish believing the Genesis account going into any kind of public square with someone who's not a follower of Christ, because it just feels like the overwhelming amount of evidence is running contrary to what you would, you would stand on holding to kind of a, a literal reading of Genesis. But even just something as simple as this, questioning real evidence that poses significant holes in scientific studies that try to date things through carbon dating or through radioisotopes. I mean, you know, that's significant. And I think we can, I don't know. I, I don't know what you do with that in terms of, 
um, how that impacts the scientific community and how they how they deal with that. I mean, how do they deal with that? How how would a, a, a you know a secular scientist deal with that data? That you oh just wow, yeah. So so we see this. We see the way they deal with it all the time, and they appeal to uh, in, in the technical literature. Now they don't talk about this in PBS shows or you know children's uh, school textbooks. <laughs> they just put out the um, the storyline, whatever matches the storyline. But behind closed doors. In the technical literature, they are they're explaining away contradictory results like these, um, and 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 basically they have to appeal to whatever they whatever they need to in order to maintain the worldview the 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 paradigm. The paradigm is these rocks are you know millions of years or whatever tens of millions of years because that's that's on the charts that are that are in all the textbooks, and it's it's a um, it's firmly planted in our minds and we're not willing to um, to go against that narrative because we'd have to go against the whole the whole world of, of scientific thought, you know. Yep. And so and so um, they explain it away and they use um, ad hoc um, arguments and they appeal to contamination. And so whenever the age assignments, you know, mismatch their expectations uh, then they're, they'll uh, they either won't, won't even report those data, or if they do report those data, they'll say, "Well, this is obviously a a modern. This sample was a modern contamination, or um, or or in this rock, you know, uh, more of this isotope slipped in during the interim, or more of the, this isotope slipped out of the rock system during the eons that it's been underground, so that they can you know they can appeal to any uh, loophole." in that way to explain it away. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. And and I see this not only in the evolution, you know, my, my reading of technical scientific literature is, uh, is minimal, but it, to some degree, I, I jump in, in a number of different conversations and that's a, a consistent thing I see happening where, and even just within the secular scientific community, I feel like there's a bit of an awakening of, you know, um, biasy that is uh, keeping uh, alternate opinions and voices that are built on good science out of the, the mainstream conversation and in some little ways there, there's a little bit of a refreshing spark in some places let me ask let me uh there's two big topics i want to get to and i want to make sure we get there but I, another question i have just thinking about this you know another line of evidence that um someone who holds to the theory of evolution would say is you know if you look at the fossil record the deeper you dig you're going to find less developed fossils less developed animals and then you've got these layers now you've mentioned the the layers already um, but it, it, what happens is the deeper you dig at the bottom, you have less developed fossils. And then as you get higher, more and more highly developed fossils. And so what they would say is these layers have developed over hundreds of millions of years. And each layer represents, you know, I don't know. The, the bottom layer represents uh, 200 million years ago, the next one, hundred million years ago. And you can see the progression, the evolution, if you will, of animals getting more and more sophisticated as the layers go higher. Um, how, how do you respond to that? Sure. Well, you actually do see a progression, but you don't see a progression towards sophistication. Uh, well, first of all, if I'm actually in a conversation, I'm not going to explain the rock layers in terms of Noah's flood, which I'll do with you because you're interested in what I'm saying. But, but if I'm in a real conversation, I'm just going to use questions. Because they're making a lot of assumptions when they interpret the, the the fossils in that way, they don't even think they're making assumptions. They don't even think it's in, they don't even see it as an interpretation. 
There's like, this is fact. Like this is simple in the bottom, complex on top, evolution's a fact, boom. And okay, so I would have to ask him, well, have you heard of the Cambrian explosion? You know, how complicated are the creatures that are in the lowermost rock layers? And it turns out that they're, they're, they, they appear suddenly in the rock record and already fully formed and in a greater variety than we have living today. So the, the, the idea that we've gone from simple, small beginnings to large and complex ends at the end of this evolutionary progression, that's just in our minds. It's, it's, it's just an interpretive filter that we're placing on the data that we're looking at. And, uh, but the facts are that, 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 that these creatures, there's, you know, 95% of the creatures that ever lived have gone extinct. So, so that's a lot of complicated um, body plans that are now gone. Um, further, we have, um, I would say, we do see a, a progression, as you said, you use that word, it's a good word, but it's, but can we go ahead and interpret the progression, not in terms of a progression of evolution, but in terms of a progression of floodwaters that came up further and further inland during the flood year? And I think it's a better explanation because that gives us, you know, first of all, that gives us fossils, period, because fossils generally don't even happen today. So you need some unique set of circumstances to make fossils and to make them in the broad, extensive rock layers in which they occur. We don't have the Niobrara chalk formation, which covers from Canada to Mexico. We, you know, we don't have uh, these um, hundreds of thousands of square miles of flat lying layers being deposited at one, you know, at one time. But this is not happening today. Uh, we have oceans today and there's no fossils fossilizing in the bottom of the oceans. It's just worms and clams eating all that stuff up. And a, even a whale carcass gets recycled within about a year um, in today's oceans, uh, depending on the temperature and everything. But uh, even whales don't turn into fossils. So, but yeah, so there's no fossils happening today, generally speaking, but they happened everywhere in the past. So let's start, let's start with the basics, right? Let's start with that. And how do you even get rock layers that are so broad with fossils in them? So I think the flood is a better explanation for that and for the progression. Now, how long did the flood take? You're That's asking the question. What? Yeah. Does the scripture say exactly how long it took? He was in the boat for four, or how many days was it? I guess it, it says how long he was in the boat. Yes. Yeah. So the, yeah. So it was a year. It was a year, a year long flood. And it was a box, not a boat necessarily, but that's OK. Uh, a, a survival box for a year. So that means we have surges and phases and pulses and mega tsunamis of, 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 uh, of water climbing up onto the pre-flood world continent. I think it was a single landmass. And we have that over and over, surge after surge, month after month. And then it says at day 150, finally, we have the, the high point of the flood at day 150. Huh. This is Genesis chapter 7. And then so now we have hundred we have uh, the rest of the year for the floodwaters to uh, Genesis chapter 8, uh, verse, I think, 3. Uh, go, the King James word is assuage uh, off the surface of the earth. So there's lots of going back and forth um, of these floodwaters. Um, re stirring up. Anyway, the bottom line is, you, you. Why do you have sea creatures in the bottom? Well, because the flood started in the sea. Why do you have sea creatures and shallow marine creatures above those? So you've deep marine, shallow marine, 
Most of the fossil record is shallow marine. Well, because the, cre the sea creatures were already down there. <laughs> and so you have underwater mud flows uh, uh, from this pre-flood world, and those creatures are getting buried by the cajillions. That's a scientific number, by the way, cajillions. I love that one. Um, and, and then it wasn't until the very last, you know, bits and stages of the flood where the waters reached the high ground and got those creatures that live on high ground. And that's, I think, why we see what we call the Cenozoic rock layers. That's where you have the giraffes and the, um, well, not necessarily like today's giraffes, but um, right. you have camels and, you know, horses and, and maybe that's where we need to start looking for the humans that may have lived back then. But um, and those are at the up, those are above the dinosaurs, you know, which lived, I think, in swamps and lowlands. And those are above the shallow marine creatures. Um, and and uh, but but regardless, there's clams throughout all of it, showing that you have mixed environments. Um, bird fossils. Explain to me the bird fossils. Like, how do birds suddenly appear fully bird as soon as you see them in the fossil? There's no evolution there. It's already got its beak. It's got it's got wings. It's got everything. Well. Wow. Uh, and so that's kind of a long answer. No, it's great. It's so great. And I, you know, I remember the first time I ever heard that, and I, 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 the first time I heard it, I dismissed it. And then the more I sat with it, I, you know, and and these different kind of evidences started kind of compiling them. Like it does to me, it 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 came to a place where that does make more sense, um, at least in my mind. But it, it, at the very least, I think we could say it is. Um, using the same data, the same the same data across an evolutionist mind and a creationist mind are these rock layers. Now, why are there rock layers, and why do the fossils form in them in the way they do? It, it, it's a it's a matter of which what narrative is the the best um, ordering of the data that we see, and um, and I think you just worded that really well. I, I appreciate kind of I appreciate that position, and I, I want other Christians just to know that you know. These basic challenges that uh, we hear over and over again that are assumed parts of the narrative of evolution aren't as stable as they seem, or they're making all kinds of assumptions, and that the biblical narrative is really stable ground to stand upon. Um, yes, right. and, and amen, and I appreciate that. And um, it just reminds me of what I'm able to say uh, when I give tours at Grand Canyon, and we look at look at all these rock layers, you know, and so the, the signage there says— you know, you, you basically assumes uh, that you can't you can't get these unless you have a lot of time, because look how little water trickles across the landscape today. So you therefore need a lot of time. Well, what is that assuming? It's assuming that today's little trickle of water deposited those layers, which it could never do because um, it doesn't do that today. Uh -huh. um, anyway, so all, you don't need a lot of time, but you do need a lot of water. And if you have a lot of water, then you don't need any you know, you don't need much time. And what does the Bible say? It says we had a lot of water. It's amazing. I love that. And I didn't realize that you do tours of the Grand Canyon. I That's good for me to take note of. I, that's something I've always wanted to do. Come along. Um, all right. Two two big topics I want to get to, and one I promised you we would get to. Um, can you walk us through? You're doing some amazing um, just kind of organizing of data and research in the area of discoveries within dinosaur fossil bones and the discovery of soft tissue. Can you kind of walk us through what is this story that's emerged? How long, like what, what's, what is this? What are we dealing with? And and how are you interpreting what you're discovering? Sure. And I'll, I'll try to do it pretty quick because uh, I want to get to the cave fish too. Yes, and and yes. I know you did ask me about my research before. And I appreciate you remembering and coming back around to it. So, uh, so what happened was um, 
researchers ha have been uh, reporting in the literature these little trickles of, of information about how they're finding original, even whole tissues like blood vessels and connective tissue and and even red blood cells and, and you know, maybe some skin and things like that. Um, but then when we, um, in, in I think it was 2005 in the journal Science, they were published um, from Tyrannosaurus rex femur bone. They had to break apart the femur in order to ex excavate it from the side of a hill. And uh, they decided to look inside the, the broken open bone just to see what was in there and dissolved away the mineral part of the bone and there was blood vessels. And um, they published those blood vessels and connective tissue, full color photos. And I think that's what grabbed the scientists' attention. And the biochemists in the in the crowd uh, looked at it and said, well, that can't be from the T-Rex because we know how short the stuff lasts. We know how fast it decays. Uh, you know, um, you know, so think about the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's made of, a lot of those are made of parchment. Parchment is skin. Skin is collagen. Same material, basically, as blood vessels. And so that can last a couple thousand years. It has lasted a couple thousand years in the dry caves, the Qumran caves in Israel. And, um, and, and uh, but it's turning brown. You know, it's getting cracked. It's turning into dust. So you give this stuff even one million years, it'll be dust. It'll be gone, long gone. But we know that they would say that this is seventy million years old. So, so therefore, it can't be the original, uh, the original blood vessels or any of the other tissues you're looking at. So then, there's just been this fight over the last twenty years um, between the biochemists who are familiar with the decay rates and the uh, paleontologists, the few who are willing to, to, um, to look into this question of fossil proteins and the paleontologists are like well, they keep finding it look there's more here there's more there and we've used another technique and we've we've used over 30 different techniques that are that are that confirm the biochemistry that we're looking at proteins and in recently in just the last few years they found dna inside intact cells that are inside the joints of certain well-preserved fossils i think these are flood fossils i think the flood did it recently within you know, um, several thousand years ago. Um, and that's why we have all these tissues and even DNA and, and intact uh, proteins. So, um, so that's, that's the controversy. And then, uh, so what do they have to do? They have to preserve the millions of years, the, the deep time. Uh -huh. So, uh, so they're, so they're coming up with um, these preservation scenarios that they have never tested and, uh, and one of the scenarios is maybe this, you know, maybe there's some chemistry happening that preserves them. And uh, it, at that point, it's, it becomes storytelling again, because they've got to say something to get these things, to these these tissues to last for tens of millions or even more years. The, the most stunning one I found is from that Cambrian, the lowermost rock. Remember I said the Cambrian explosion? We have all those fully formed fossils at the very, at the very base of the rock record where you start seeing any fossils. And I think that's the first phase and first, you know, stage of the flood. That's the first creatures to be deposited thousands of years ago. So in the flood model, we would expect the possibility of original biomaterials like proteins could be in the upper layers, middle layers, or lower layers, since all the layers, the whole stack formed in just one year, thousands of years ago. Sure enough, secular scientists have described uh, uh, a protein chitin complex in a sponge fossil 
Chitin is um, a structural biomolecule. Bio um, it's what insect exoskeletons are made of in general. Anyway, so sponges, sea sponges, have some chitin in them and proteins. And they published this, and I was like, okay, it's 520 million-year-old protein? That's fantasy land. Come on. Proteins yeah. don't last even one million years, let alone a half a billion. So I, I think the numbers are just monopoly numbers. You know, I, I don't put any stock in those deep time ages. It's it's amazing. And, I, you know, you, you just explained it better than I understood it. But when I first heard about this and I I, I just feel like it's one of those um, this has to have some kind of impact. Like, like at some point somewhere, enough light bulbs have to go off to say that the narrative is not matching up and it's got to make some inroads. And I'm just curious to see how this all plays out in time, but I know that you're kind of organizing and collecting every find. I think I saw, you said there's over a hundred specific individual finds in fossil bones of this soft tissue um, material that they keep finding. 120 plus or something like that. I think you had mentioned. Yeah, correct. 120 uh, separate technical publications that describe um, some, you know, some of these are on the same fossil specimen. Most of them have multiple fossil specimens. So it's not like number of fossil finds, but it's a number of publications. I see. Okay. 120 papers. Amazing. Um, yeah. And we're using, oh, gee whiz, we're using uh, microscopy. Um, we're using immunofluorescent staining. Um, we're using, and then, like I said, there's 30 different techniques. Wow. that we're using that the, the community is bringing to bear upon these fossils because the claim is so outrageous that there's these you know proteins are still in there yeah right give me a brick prove it to me and so it's like the the, the paleontologists um i guess including me now we're we're showing evidence i mean what else how else can we prove it we've shown 30 different techniques that keep pointing to proteins 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 and it's not just you know one t-rex femur we're finding these on every continent so far except amazing. except australia even antarctica by the way every continent has dinosaur fossils and clam fossils even antarctica so these fossils are worldwide and the bible says the flood was worldwide it takes a worldwide cause to produce a worldwide effect as our geologist dr clary says and i agree with him wow Wow, that's so, that's incredible. Okay, um, I want to. I really want to spend the rest of our time and however much uh, you'll offer here, just sharing about your own research. And uh, I know this gets you excited. Um, and so you're doing some cool uh, studies. Is it cave cave fish? Am I using the right the right language there? Uh, but you're doing some incredible studies. I just watched a bit of you talking about it earlier today. Uh, just about what you're finding uh, with your own research. So can you share that with us? And what's getting you excited about that right now? Yes, thank you. Uh, so, so let me just lay out the idea of a model uh, that we have for creatures and their design. And the and and the big the big question that Darwin tried to answer was all about how creatures adapt. You know, how creatures adapt to how do they change through time? And um, uh, he was looking at pigeons, and he noticed how people breed pigeons, and they can get you know if you cross this. Um, breed with that breed, you, you, you could do a back cross and, and you could get all these different feather patterns, you know, plumage colors. And, and so he thought, well, maybe nature does what, what these breeders are doing. And he, so he, then he called it nature is selecting, you know? Um, and, and so that has become the reigning and ruling way to think about all of biology. 
And so that, that that's why we got the popular um, phrase, you know, nothing makes sense in biology except in the light of evolution. I forget who said that, Dubjansky or somebody. Um, but actually, so what we want to do is come say, but is that true? Can we make sense of all of biology without evolution? How about a creation alternative? So we're coming up with a creation alternative that describes adaptation, not in terms of the external outside environment, molding and crafting creatures to make the turn, transform them from one form into another, and eventually uh, from one basic kind into another. Um, that's externalism, we call it. But what if it's internalistic? In other words, what if the pigeons had the the options available from the beginning so that they could deploy this color feather or that shape of wing or feather or or beak shape or something like that and so um anyway that's that's the big basic concept and so if if god created creatures and if he created them not just to be static looked exactly the same every generation but to be able to deploy trait um, trait variations, uh -huh. you know, like uh, long hair versus short hair, or this coat color pattern versus that coat color pattern. And if he front-loaded the biological information, genetic or otherwise, because now we have epigenetics and all kinds of different information storage vehicles inside cells other than just genes, um, if, if he front-loaded these creatures with that information in the beginning, um, then that would actually have equipped them to do what he commanded them to do in Genesis chapter 1, which was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And he knew that the earth would have ever-changing environments. After all, he said about sun, moon, and stars, they shall be signs and uh, for season, for days and for years. So he knew, so we had seasons in the beginning. So, so you have to adapt to seasonal changes. You have to adapt to day and night changes. And then we, when a creature moves into a new environment, it changes the environment that it's in. So every other creature has to adjust and adapt to that new creature. So, so how extensive can these ad adaptations be? And what's causing these adaptations? So at our Institute for Creation Research in Dallas, you can come visit us at the Discovery Center. And um, it's like a museum get a walk through history and everything. Uh, but we have on display our fish lab and we have dozens of um, um, tanks and we have the blind cave fish, Mexican blind tetra, uh, Astyanax mexicanus, which is an interesting fish because the, the blind version has no eyes and very little pigment, it's pink, but it has enhanced sensory organs other than the eyes. So it has enhanced chemical sensors and pressure sensors. But then this thing interbreeds with the, the sighted surface version. So the surface fish, you know, it's silver with a gray stripe on its back, on its dorsal surface. And then um, it, it's got big eyes and everything. And anyway, so these, they interbreed just fine. Um, but the question is, how did the, how and when did the, we're assuming that the sighted fish turned blind. And we at the Institute used to teach that this happened by natural selection and that over eons, um, you know, sighted fish were pioneering into these caves and uh, the, the ones that died because of the cave environment, th those died off. So you have lots of death of the unfit 
you know, it was not fit for caves and eventually emerged after, you know, some thousands of, of years, because that's our paradigm, uh, you know, the blind variety. Well, problem with that is the, um, the sighted and the blind have the same genes. There's hardly any genetic difference between these two, and yet they look completely different. So there's something else, something not selection of mutants you know, uh, going on. And if indeed this this is God front loaded these particular fish with the ability to deploy a cave version of itself, then we're looking for clues that that might be the case um, or might not be. And that's kind of how science goes. So our initial reports, uh, our initial investigation has to do with pigments. And we have a stunning result. Um, we thought maybe if we shined a, a, a strong sun mimicking light onto the cave variety, which has very little pigment, that the fish, you know, in some over some number of generations would eventually detect that increased light and then deploy, you know, uh, pigmented skin. We got it to happen in 30 days within the same fish that had been unpigmented for who knows how long, maybe thousands of years, maybe hundreds of generations of no pigment. And all of a sudden you shine a light on it and it still has within itself the detectors that are saying, ah, oh, you've got UV here. You need to deploy some UV protection system so that your DNA doesn't get damaged and get all these mutations. And so that's why we need some pigment. Okay, pigment production, ramp it up. And they did it within 30 days. Now this is programmed. This is programmed. Um, and so um, it's exciting evidence. It's exciting to even investigate the question. You know, how do creatures adapt? And we're convinced um, more and more with more, not just with these fish, but with other publications that the mainstream scientists are publishing about their descriptions, even finch beaks. You know, we, we were told finch beaks is an example of evolution and action and these finches, it's the it's the environment. It's a it's the lack of available food. That's what's changing the finch beak shapes as the finches die off. By the way, the finches aren't dying off necessarily. None of our fish died off, but they made these trait changes. And so you don't have to have you don't have to have lots of death in order to change traits. You just have to have it pre-programmed. And so what geneticists have discovered about these finch beaks just published in the last few years, they have genetic algorithms that match. Uh, the formula for a, a what we call a semi-cone. And a beak is a, is half of a cone. Half the cone for the top beak, half for the cone for the bottom beak. And by twiddling with a couple of variables in this formula, you could get a shorter beak, a wider beak at the base. And so the, the formula, it turns out, is embedded. It's baked into the, um, the baby fish. And as the cells that produce beak, they as they develop that beak in the egg, some of the some of the chicks hatch with a longer beak, some with a shorter beak, and it's like it was all pre-programmed. And there's no uh, there's no necessarily death of a finch beak or, or sorry of the finch. It's just uh, algorithms all pre preset and um, uh, detecting. Maybe some of these are detecting the environment and deploying uh, trait options that fit those environments. And maybe in some cases, it's just deploying trade options that are, and then, and then it's up to that next generation to go find an environment that it best it's best suited for. And creatures are doing this all the time. The, the, what gets me excited about this is that even as a creationist, we have been giving credit to nature for the trait variations, nature for adaptation, nature for this, nature for that. It's so pervasive. But now that we're seeing that, that, um, that, the, that these trait variations happen according to preset designs and programming, 
wow, the credit goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And forgive me, Lord, for crediting nature with what only you could have done and with what you are doing, even in these creatures as they unfold uh, and, and fit into their environments and they pioneer and find new niches um, and, um, and glorify you in ways that I just couldn't imagine because I was Darwinized for so long. So have you, have you been able to publish these findings yet? We published the, yeah, we published that one in, uh, Ju uh June of 2023. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and if I'm understanding it correctly, the assumption would be that over a series of generations, some mutation or some form of natural selection, if that's the word, but some mutation would give rise to, you know, a new, uh, a new mutation that would better live in the environment with the light. But right there within the same, like within 30 days on the same fish, you're seeing those mutations, meaning God made the design. He made it so they could do this from the beginning. And it's a total rewriting of um, the, the presupposed kind of narrative. That's fascinating. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. It, I want to close us out here. Is there any, do you want to have a last word for us on this topic? Anything that you want to just uh, encourage our listeners with? I do. I, I, and and what I want to say is, you know, we live in a culture that where God is marginalized and minimalized, minimized. And it, um, if you're going to stand for God and stand for creation, you're going to be laughed at and scoffed at. But that's what, that's what um, the Bible promises Christians, isn't it? You, you, you are going to suffer persecution if you follow me. And um, but what I'm saying is the science to support creation is so strong and it's growing so much stronger year by year um, that it becomes easier and easier to have a defensible um, um, stand and a defensible worldview. And we, we, are, we have more confidence now than, than ever that uh, with the more that we learn, about God's world, that God's world does match his word. We have more confidence than ever that the Lord is the creator. Um, and that means that his Bible's right, okay? And so this creator is not just some aloof, distant, deistic presence that's lingering somewhere out there and, you know, doesn't impact my life. This creator is, is, uh, wants to know us. He wants to get to know each one of us. So, so as a Christian, let's say I'm listening to this podcast and I'm a Christian and I'm, and I'm, and I'm thinking, um, yeah, God's, God's got some truth in his Bible and, um, but there's other parts that you can't really take at face value. I would challenge that. Are you going to go with what God says about the past? And, are, and because I'm saying you can, there's evidence to support all of it. And then, what that does for us is it gives us confidence, a confident witness. Now we can say to the world, yeah, I believe all of the Bible. I believe all of Jesus. And he made this world and he made me and he made you and wants to know you. That's our message. And I want as many people as I can to, to grab a hold of that, to latch onto that message. If you don't know what you believe or why you believe it, find out, you know, investigate. Uh, and I think maybe your your story will turn into something like mine or pastor rafe's where we we investigated it and we found the evidence that supports the scripture and uh, one place you can go is to icr.org 
Um, in fact, you could go to store.icr.org and look at my new book. Woohoo! <laughs> you get tell Living, us that one more time. Yeah, Living in Light of Genesis. And in this book, I talk about these things that we just discussed. Um, reasons why we should, as Christians, take Genesis at face value and results in our lives, um, in, a, in a culture, in our families, uh, when we do take Genesis at face value. And the God of the Bible, really, is, is, is what it boils down to, trusting him in every area, living in light of Genesis. So anyways, icr.org, find out what you believe, why you believe it, um, trust in the Lord more, be a stronger a witness. You can do it. It's there. Uh, I am so, so grateful for you coming on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Brian Thomas with ICR. Uh, just so grateful for you. And uh, yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for letting me ramble. Well, thank you for tuning in today. I do hope that this interview has blessed you and if nothing else, given you some uh, new talking points on the discussion of evolution and creation. Uh, and for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I hope that it really has solidified your belief in the Bible. That the Bible can be trusted. It is true. You can stand confidently in it and uh, it's never going to let you down. Uh, if you like what you heard, let me encourage you to give us a five-star rating on whatever app you're using to listen to us to share this wide and far with your friends and uh, leave comments if uh, you'd like to. Thank you so much for tuning in. Lord willing, get a chance to chat with you again next week.